We are back in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, where we get this vision of generations of people worshiping together. Generations of people worshiping together. And I think that's something we may have lost a little bit here in American Christianity. Um, I don't know if you know this, but we typically break down people based on generation. Um, there's no hard and fast, clear lines between different generations. But generally speaking, there are cultural factors that make someone part of a specific generation. And you can identify yourself here. The greatest generation, and to be honest, the greatest generation is mostly passed away now. Is anyone born between 1901 and 1924? 1901 and 1924. The silent generation, is anyone born between 1925 to 1945? Um, I'm actually not sure why they call them the silent generation. Um, Folks that age don't tend to be too silent, to be honest, but uh, they call them the silent generation. The baby boomer generation, is anyone born between 1946 and 1964? Gen X... Generation X, that's me, Uh, anyone born between 1965 and 1980, small, short generation, not a lot of kids born during that period of time. The Millennials, which is a huge, I think is the biggest generation since the Baby Boomers in terms of uh, how many kids were born. Anyone born between 1981 and 1996, they're called Millennials because they grew up past the turning of the millennium. Generation Z. Is anyone born between 1997 to about 2012? And now they also have, just sort of in, in, the, in the making, uh, Generation Alpha. Uh, is anyone born sort of 2010-ish? Anyone in the teens there is part of what's called Generation Alpha. And what's happening, I think, a lot is that churches are sent, tending to break up into groups that are identified with your specific generation. And uh, you see churches that are filled with mostly seniors, senior citizens, folks who are in the silent generation, and that's what they want. Everything is, is, is culturally what they would like. Uh, baby boomers, you guys were the worst, to be honest, on this. So the whole attractional movement, big megachurch, Rick Warren, Willow Creek, all that stuff was all the baby boomers saying, hey, we get to do things our way. Uh, Gen X, we're too small, so we got to jump in with one of the other groups. But millennials are also saying, hey, we want a church that things are, where things are done, where we're familiar with the way we like things. And of course, Gen Z are still kind of tagging along with their parents, for the most part, at this point in time. I think that's a mistake. In the same way, I think it's a mistake to break up into different races and ethnicities. Black church, Anglo church, Asian church, Latino church. I think it's a mistake to break up into different generations. We need each other. We learn from each other. It's hard, but it says something beautiful and important when generations worship together. Look with me at Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Ezra 3, 8 to 13. Looking here, continuing on the story of Ezra. They've come back to the land, you may remember. um, And they've begun by building the altar. Nothing else but the altar. Well, about a year has passed they're all settling into their different towns and so forth where they say, all right, now it's time to really get going with the temple. Verse 8. Now in the second year, after they're coming to the house of God, really what will become the house of God, the house of God at Jerusalem, 
In the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading, the proclamation, and the application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. If you'd like to know, uh, God's people should entrust the young, verses 8 and 9. Uh, God's people should unite around worship, verse 10 and 11. And of course, that last section, which I think is really fascinating about the weeping and the, the, uh, the, the shouting for joy, God's people need other generations, 12 and 13. So that's where we're headed. If you look at verse Eight with me. In the second year, as I said, they took about a year to fix the altar and begin offering sacrifices and then settle in their towns. But now it's time to get back to business, and it's Zerubbabel who leads the way. Who is he? Again, he's a direct descendant of David, and therefore Jesus is a direct descendant, ultimately, too, of Zerubbabel. The line that leads to the Messiah has been preserved, and here Zerubbabel is actually taking the lead. He becomes sort of the governor of this group. And then Jeshua, which literally is the name for Jesus, but this isn't Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Son of God, different Jeshua, uh, but there is a connection. He's the high priest, and he makes a uh, he together with Zerubbabel make a beginning. In other words, let's get started on this repair, and together they begin work. And notice what they do. They appoint Levites from 20 years old and upward. That's pretty young, 20 years old, even in terms of historical times. Nowadays, it's even, you know, 20-year-olds, maybe even younger in terms of how we view things, but even back for back then, um, you weren't considered a rabbi in Jesus' time unless you were 30 years old. By the way, Jesus began his earthly public ministry at age 30. There's a reason for that. 20-year-olds were still seen as very young, and yet they're put in charge. Notice, it's not just the 20-year-olds get to work in the temple and do whatever their dads tell them to do. Right? Look what it says, uh, from 20 years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. They're in charge of it. Now, why would you put the young 
particularly in charge of the rebuilding, because they're the ones who are going to worship at this temple for generations going forward, as those who are older are on their way out. Notice the way it describes different generations sort of working on this together. Verse 9, Jeshua with his sons, Cadmiel with his sons, the Levites with their sons, side by side, working and building on the temple. They entrust the young. Friends, I've said this before, but I think this is where American Christianity has failed pretty badly. In fact, if you're someone who hasn't really traveled much outside of the United States, and especially into Asia, and perhaps into Africa and South America, you, you may have this view that the Christian faith is primarily those who are older. Right? It's, an, it's an older man's religion. It's an older woman's religion. That For the most part, it's the older who are interested in church and who are interested in God. But when you go to Asia, that's my more, my, I have more experience certainly with Asia, that is not the case. <laughs> In fact, you'll see the church is filled primarily with 20 and 30-year-olds. You'll have a few who are up there in age, and they're called grandpa, and they're respected highly within that church. But they're not the ones doing the majority of the ministry in that church. We've had some folks join us online from Nepal and, and places like that, and those guys are all in their 20s and 30s. Deben and Babaram and others that we've seen join. They're, these are young men. The church is primarily made up of the youth. What's happened here? Well, that was probably the case for a long time here in the United States until we begin to fail to reach the next generation. Now, we can blame the next generation, and there's a lot to blame. (laughs) As I said before, I'm I'm not saying that the next generation is innocent and they've done nothing wrong and it's it's, it's all on us, but I think there is a, a, a real failure here. I've mentioned the Faith, Community, uh, Faith Communities Today survey. Um, one of the things they surveyed, I didn't mention earlier, is that in the general population, about 17% of people are over 65. In the local church, 33% are 65 or older. Now again, I love our, our, our 65 and older folks, but if one-third of the church is made up of those over 65, when only about half of that is true in the greater culture. What does that mean? The younger generation isn't being reached. In fact, it's not even just that the younger generation has given up on church. It seems to be that the younger you are, the more you've given up on Christianity, on faith, on religion as well. American Survey Center said this, more than one-third, 34% of Gen Z are religiously unaffiliated. So back in the day, even if you don't go to church, you'd say, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Catholic, I'm whatever, right? Now over a third would say, I have no religious affiliation at all. A significantly larger proportion than among the millennials, which is 29%. And Gen X, which is 25%. We went from a quarter to over a third in just a short period of time. Fewer than one five, 18%, baby boomers. So you baby boomers, 82% would say they have some religious affiliation. That's grown considerably. In the silent generation, like Dennis, 9%, only 9% would say today they have no religious affiliation. You can see the direction where we're headed. People are giving up on faith. They're giving up on the Christian faith in particular. What can we do? (laughs) What can we do about that? 
I don't have all the answers on that. I, w- I mean, I wish I did. I wish I could say, here's the, the, the five-step formula <laughs> to, to radically change this around. But I have been talking to a lot of folks, a lot of pastors and other uh, leaders, and saying, how do you reach 20-year-olds? How do you reach 30-year-olds? How do you, basically anyone younger than me, right? I'm 44, so how do we reach people who are younger than me? And I've gotten all different types of advice and feedback. But one I want to mention in particular is talking to a pastor named Dennis Karp. He's a pastor in the Washington, D.C. area. And he described his church, which is relatively small. He said, we have seen an absolute radical change in our church. Uh, We now have, our church is only 100 people, he said now. And 35 of them are 12 and under. (laughs) And who brings 12 and under-year-olds? 20 and 30-year-olds, right? And I said, Dennis, what did you do? How did you do that? And he said, focused, intentional prayer. And my, to my shame, my response was, well, yeah, that, but what else? <laughs> so there's my own heart. And he said, no, no, Rick, that's it. We spent a season of just asking God to na- enable us to reach the next generation, and he has blessed us. He did mention things like he puts... It, the, the, the 20 and 30 year olds in charge hey they got, they're, they're going to organize it they're going to take care of it he's on his way out by the way he's retiring and moving to Israel but what a convicting thing it was for me to hear and friends we've been talking about this as our board of elders one of the things we would like to do is spend our Lent season so Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter right praying that God would open doors of ministry and give us wisdom about how do we reach the next generation Honestly, I don't, I don't have a set plan. I don't have a, here's, here's we're going to use prayer to, to kind of get to the plan that I really want to present to you. I don't, I don't have a plan. <laughs> I genuinely want us to just pray and ask God for wisdom and how do we reach the next generation. Because, friends, the, the, the statistics are pretty obvious and our own church is not an exception on this. I don't know where we would be in 50 years unless we get busy praying and ask God for great wisdom about how to reach the next generation. A lot of you guys, of course, have kids, grandkids who are in that age group. You want to see them come to know Jesus, don't you? (laughs) Don't you want to see them come to know Jesus Uh, desperately? And maybe you're frustrated because they have a different politics than you and they have different cultural, social values than you. But forget all that for now and just pray that God gives us wisdom about how we reach the next generation. These Israelites said the 20 year olds are in charge and they're going to help lead the way in building this temple because it's going to be primarily their temple we're on our way out they're the ones who are going to lead worship in the days ahead speaking of worship where does he go from there what unites us 10 and 11 God's people should unite around worship they should unite around worship look at verse 10 when they lay the foundation of the temple of the Lord. They get not the whole thing, but you got to start with the foundation. They got the general sense of the size of the temple. What do they do? The priests put on their vestments. So they're going to go all out in their worship here. We're going to go uh, high church worship. We're going to dress up for this and everything. The priests and their vestments come forward with trumpets. The Levites, notice the sons of Asaph. We talked about this. Asaph wrote a bunch of the Psalms that we still use for worship even today. Uh, but, hit, but the sons of Asaph with cymbals, you know, banging their cymbals together to praise 
the Lord. They just go all out and celebrate the fact that the temple's foundation has been laid. God is doing something new and fresh and exciting in our day. And I like it according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Now, if you've studied David, First and Second Samuel, beginning of First Kings a little bit there, you may like David, you may not like David. All right, David had his faults, that's for sure. But one thing David did well was worship, right? David, he wrote more psalms than anyone else in the Bible. And there is, of course, that event where David strips down to his underwear. <laughs> and he dances in front of all of Israel with all of his heart and all of his might. And so much to the point where his wife says, you've just embarrassed yourself in front of the servant girls of Israel. And he says, I don't care. I'm dancing with all my might in the sight of the Lord, right? Now, I'm not recommending stripping down to your underwear. I understand, okay? <laughs> Keep your clothes on, but worship with all of your might and all of your heart. What unites these generations? Worship. We can disagree on any number of different things, but they are united in this. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. The word for steadfast love there is the Hebrew word chesed. It means covenant love. It means committed love. It's almost like a marriage love. Love through ups and downs, through thick and thin. God never abandons his people. His chesed endures forever. Whether you're 20 years old or a kid or you're 50 years old or 70 years old there in Israel, you can celebrate that the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Friends, I think one of the ways we unite is to get back to the simple, clear gospel. We, we can disagree on so many things. If we, if we had, that's the old saying, right? You get 10 Baptists in a room, and they'll come up with 11 different opinions, all right? So how that works, I don't know. And we could talk all day about what you think about the current administration and what you think about Chinese spy balloons, right? We may have different opinions. <laughs> Who cares, ultimately, about those things? We're united in this. I'm a sinner who deserves hell. But the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. He would rescue and save me, and he will rescue and save you. And friends, we have folks here who came to faith when they were eight years old. We have faith, folks here who came to faith in their 70s, and together we celebrate the steadfast love of God in saving sinners. I like hanging around with, with Gen, Gen X people, because that's where I'm at, right? We share our, our similar sort of views, like what, what are good movies? Like uh, Bill Murray movies are the best comedies. The raunchy comedies today are terrible, right? So you, know, you, know, you can disagree with me, but that's true. You know, that's just biblical truth right there, right? We might share similar views on sports, life situation, kids, maybe around the same age. And, but I'd have far more in common with 80-year-olds who believe in the gospel than with 40-year-olds who don't. In fact, I couldn't worship at a church with a bunch of people my age who have no great delight in the goodness of God and his steadfast love. But I'd rather, I'd worship all day long 
at a church of 20-year-olds who are celebrating God's grace and, his, and faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, what we need to do is recognize what matters and what is lasting and what we really need to hold on to and hold on tight to that and then recognize what doesn't matter all that much and be willing to adapt and change. The church has never been monolithic. The church throughout its history has changed in all different ways. The way you approach programs, the way you approach styles of worship, and the way you, for a long time, every, some of you guys who are older, especially the silent generation and baby boomers would say, you went to church on Sunday morning, you went to church on Sunday night, and you went to church on Wednesday night, right? Wednesday night prayer meeting or church, right? right? Eventually they said, no more Wednesday night, let's get rid of that. And then they said, no more Sunday night. And then they said, let's just do community groups instead, right? And that's what, what sort of baby boomers have done and so forth. It's constantly changing. Those things are not essential. What's essential is the gospel. And we unite around worship of God. And that, friends, cuts across all generations. Look where he goes from there. We come to this section in 12 to 13. Many of the priests and the Levites, heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house. They have seen Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple was big and it was beautiful and filled with gold plating everywhere and these beautiful curtains and just a, an amazing sight. And when they see the foundation of the new temple, this somewhat minuscule small thing that is nothing like the previous thing, they begin to weep at what is lost. Nostalgia begins to set in and they begin to think, this is nothing like what once was. But the young, who've never seen the first temple, they're just so excited that they're back in the land, God is at work, and we've even been able to lay the foundation for a future built temple, and they're celebrating, and I like it, it says that the weeping was so loud, and the shouts of joy was so loud, you couldn't distinguish the two. It's like when you go to a ball game, and the booing and the cheering are so loud, you can't tell. Are they booing or are they cheering? I don't know what they're saying right now. It's just this huge, loud praise. And let me just go ahead and tell you, I think the old men are wrong. And I have biblical support for that, okay? So this is mentioned, this very thing is mentioned in Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, Haggai says this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work! For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And later on in Zechariah, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. Don't despise the day of small things. Friends, I think we are often in danger of this, of looking about everything new and saying, it's not as good as it used to be. And we look back on the glorious days of the past, which, to be honest, weren't always so glorious, right? That's what nostalgia does. Nostalgia only looks at the positive of the way things were. Oh, if we could go back to the 1950s with segregation and Jim Crow laws. Wait, what? <laughs> 
we leave out some of those things, right? Uh, what happened were churches separated into different ethnic groups and didn't cross Are those really the glory days? There's some things to say about them that are glorious for sure. We tend to overlook certain things that weren't so great. And not only that, friends, don't steal that. Don't steal this from the young. When you, all you could think about is how great Christianity used to be and how glorious the church was back in its day, you're taking something away from those who are saying, look what God is doing in our day and celebrating that. You know what they didn't know? That in a little while, Herod the Great, for all of his faults, would take this temple and make it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world so that it was bigger and more glorious even than Solomon's temple. But they didn't know that at that time. All they could think was to look back. So at the time of Jesus, you can actually know where the exterior walls are and where some of the original Solomon walls are. It's not even, it's just huge comparatively. No sense of what God would do in terms of the glory of that building. And of course, eventually the coming of the Messiah. Friends, I, I think there is wisdom in saying we have something to learn from each other. I, I would say that goes both ways, certainly. Um, if, if, I'm, if I'm 20-something years old, I, I don't want to be part of a church filled with only those who are 20-something year old, right? I, I was talking to a pastor in Lowell whose church is mostly, you know, college-age student. This is a while back. And he said, you know what we need, <laughs> Rick? We need some people who have been married for longer than like five years. <laughs> we need some people who have been married for 40 years and actually know how to do this so they can tell us how to persevere and be married for a long period of time because we're dealing with all these marriage issues. And I you know, mentioned at the time that, hey, we got a lot of people who've been married for 50 years at our church and we joked about making a trade, okay? We can't do that, no trades. I wasn't gonna trade any of you away, don't worry. But it was just funny to think, man, we could just sort of change that up a bit, how cool that would be. And friends, I would say the same is true of those who are older. There is something to learn from those who are younger. You know, one thing that I would say is for those who are older, I, since I'm Generation X, I get to just pick on both, both sides, right? Because I'm in the middle, so I don't, have to, I don't have to take a side here. And that is those who are younger know what it's like to grow up where the Christian faith has never had favor. So if you grew up in which you're used to the fact that Christianity had the favor of the government, had the favor of the culture, remember praying in schools, maybe even reading the Bible in school, in public schools? If you're in your 20s, you're, I don't, that's foreign to, to you. What? I can't even imagine a time in, in which Christianity was sort of the dominant view and people were... And friends, the truth of the matter is that's the general rule, not the exception around the world. If you talk to folks in China, they can't imagine that the, that the government of China, the CCP, is for the church. They can't imagine arguing that the laws of the land should be in agreement with our Christian ethics and, and morals. Like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> that's, that's completely foreign. And the truth of the matter is, in the Bible, we're called more to be those in Babylon than those in Israel. In other words, when, when God's people are in the land of Israel, the government is meant to follow the Torah. But the Christian faith is more Israel and Babylon in a foreign land that doesn't agree with them. 
right, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say something controversial. Right. Some of you guys say, you've been controversial enough, Pastor Rick. Go ahead and drop it there. But I'm going to say something a little controversial. If you're over my age, you cannot even imagine how our country could allow gay marriage. If you're a Christian under my age, you're saying, I don't get what the big deal is. Why would we even think that our country would support Christian values? That's not, that's not our job, is to force. It's a cultural issue where you see the tension right there. If you grew up with, this, with the country being favorable to Christianity, you're, you're seeing what it was lost. And maybe grieving, weeping over what was taken. If you grew up beyond that, you're sitting there probably saying, I never understood how this could be an issue to begin with. As Christians, what we're doing is calling each other to Christian ethics and Christian morality to follow Jesus. Our goal was never to sort of establish it into the law of the land. Friends, we have something to learn from each other. What does it mean to be in exile? What does it mean to not have the favor of the culture on our side? And how do we live out our lives in faithfulness going forward? The picture, the vision of scripture is generational worship. We don't separate into our little camps. Surround ourselves with people who are like us. Share the same view of culture and politics and so forth. We unite around worship. We entrust the young. And we need each other. We need other generations. I have no doubt, or very little, I'll say very little, very little doubt that First Baptist Church will reach the next generation. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm confident it's going to happen. God has been faithful to us for so long. Folks have put in so many hours of heartfelt prayer. Folks like our brother Dennis has prayed for this church for longer than I've been alive. I have no doubt that the next generation will worship as part of this church family of the future. But friend, we need to pray, and we need to adapt, and we need to look to unite around what really matters, the simple gospel, the worship of the one true and living God, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your word here in Ezra 3. Um, it, it, is, it is stunning to me uh, and maybe to others here how such an ancient book has a word of wisdom for us today. And it speaks to the inspiration of your word. Lord, if we look at, at the news from yesterday, it's already outdated <laughs> and irrelevant. We're reading a nearly 3,000-year-old book, and it speaks to what we today need, which is to reach across generations and bring true and right worship of God. Be glorified, Father, as we get ready, to for a season of devoted prayer. Uh, Lord, help us to really, truly be open-hearted, open-minded, to pray and look to your will to reach another generation to your glory. 
I thank, I thank you, Lord, for the 20 and 30-year-olds who are already part of our church. I don't want to overlook that. Uh, grateful, Father, for them. Help us to listen well. And we pray, Father, that you do a new thing. And that those of us who are older, and I, I put myself in that, that category a little bit now, too, that we would not weep about what is past, but rejoice about what is to come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.